Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, 
and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Brilliant. Do keep Acts open in front of you um, and let's pray together as we come to God's word this morning. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus is alive. Thank you that he is uh, the king who rules from heaven uh, and the king who speaks to us uh, through his word. So Father, please help us this morning to listen uh, to King Jesus together, we ask in his name. Amen. Well, just as we begin, I just want you to take just 10 seconds uh, and have a think. Uh, Have a think about how you first came to hear about Jesus. Just think for a moment. Think back. That might be a long way back. It might be a few weeks back. Uh, How did you first come to hear about Jesus? Uh, As you think about that question, I imagine that different people come into your minds. Maybe straight away you think of your your parents telling you about Jesus at a young age. Maybe you think about a youth leader or a school teacher. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe someone that you bumped into. There'll be all sorts of people that we think of when we think of that question, how did I first hear about Jesus? But then as you think about those people, I wonder if you've ever asked yourself, how did they hear? How did my mum and dad find out about Jesus? That would be a great question to ask them later today, wouldn't it? How did my mum and dad find out? How did my friend find out about Jesus? How did they hear? Who told the person, who told the person, who told the person, who told you about Jesus? It would be fascinating, wouldn't it, to be able to, to be able to do that, to kind of do a family tree, to kind of trace back through history and see how the gospel eventually came to you. It would be fascinating, and if we did it, we would trace all the way back to a small group of men and women sitting in an upstairs room, scared, confused, not really sure what they're meant to do next. In fact, if we asked any one of the two billion Christians around the world today, their story would trace back to that little group of people as well. It would trace back to Acts chapter 1. If you were with us last week, you know we started this new series looking at the book of Acts. And at the very beginning, we heard about the start of what we now call the church. Jesus Christ has been crucified, killed for crimes that he didn't commit. 
but he didn't stay dead, did he? Three days later, he rose to life. He appeared to his followers. He spoke with them. He ate with them. He talked to them. And he explained to them that his death wasn't an accident. He wasn't just a helpless victim. No, it was all part of the plan, all part of the mission that he had come to earth to do, the mission to die in the place of guilty people so that he could offer them forgiveness and life in his name. That was Jesus' mission. And in Acts chapter 1, the risen Jesus says to his people, I'm going to continue my mission through you. He's about to leave and he gives them this job, this mission of taking the message of the gospel, the message of forgiveness and life in Jesus' name and taking it to the whole world. That was the job. That's the the mission Jesus gives. And if you can remember, it's a daunting one. There's just a a handful of them, and there's a whole world to tell. A world that has just put their Messiah to death. But Jesus reassures them. He says he's going to send the Spirit. The Spirit who will strengthen them, empower them in this mission. And so last week, we left the disciples waiting, waiting for the arrival of the promised spirit. And you can imagine, can't you, what it must have been like, what they must have been thinking. What's it going to be like when this spirit of God comes? How are we going to know? Will we recognize him? What if we miss it? Gathered together in that upstairs room, the disciples wait They wait and they wonder what is going to happen next. And that brings us to chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. And the Spirit finally arrives. And he doesn't arrive quietly. Just look at chapter 2, verse 2 with me. It says, Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house they were sitting in. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. The arrival of the Spirit is unmissable, isn't it? There's fire, there's wind, there's different languages, tongues. It's an incredible, amazing event. And in verse 6, it says it leaves everyone there bewildered, confused, full of questions. In fact, the arrival of the Spirit leads the people there to ask two big questions. Two questions, you can see them in our passage. The first is there in verse 12. What does this mean? What on earth is going on? And then the second question is across the page in verse 37. What shall we do? What does it mean? And what shall we do? Two key questions for Acts chapter 2. And so the plan for the rest of this morning is for us to answer those two questions. What does it mean and what should we do? So first question, what does it all mean? If you like watching sport, you'll know that that most sporting events nowadays begin with a a big entrance, don't they? There's usually a load of flamethrowers and fireworks involved as teams come running out of the tunnel. And I guess on on first reading of Acts 2, we might think that's what's going on here. God has kind of brought out the pyrotechnics for the big day. 
But whilst wind and fire might seem a little bit random to us, it wouldn't have done to the Jewish people there that day. You see, these were Old Testament signs of God's presence. A little bit like at a wedding. Everybody's there in the church, aren't they? They're, they're all waiting eagerly for the arrival of the bride. And then suddenly you begin to see the signs. A, a car pulls up with those ribbons on the front. The photographer starts clicking away madly. The music begins to play and then you just catch a glimpse at the back of the, the white dress. Signs, signs that the bride has arrived. And here, the wind and the fire, they are signs that God has arrived. Just think back to to Exodus and Moses meeting God where? In the burning bush. Or how God led the Israelites through through the desert by a great pillar of fire. A fire is a sign of God's presence. And so is the rushing wind. If you think back to Ezekiel and his vision of the valley of dry bones, in that vision, God breathes on these bones, these dead bones, and they come to life. He breathes on them with his wind-like breath, Ezekiel says. And then in John chapter 20, Jesus promised his followers that he would breathe his spirit on them. And so wind or breath and fire and flames, they're, they're all signs of God's presence. However, the big difference here in Acts 2 is that unlike in the Old Testament, God's presence doesn't just come on one person, a David or a Moses. It's not located in one place, a tent or a temple. Now here in Acts 2, we see God coming by his spirit to all his people. He's come to live in each and every one of them. And so here's the day they've been waiting for. Here's the day the prophets spoke about and Jesus promised God himself has come to live in his people. It's an amazing day, a monumental day. The disciples receive the Spirit and they are filled with praise for God. They talk about all his wonders. It's an amazing day. But what does it mean for us today? What does it mean, is the question. Should we, should we expect to see tongues of fire? Should we hear rushing wind every time somebody becomes a Christian? Well, in one sense, what we read in Acts 2, Pentecost, it's a, it's a unique historical event. Just like Jesus' birth and death and resurrection were unrepeatable events, so is the arrival of the Spirit. Pentecost is simply the the next stage in God's salvation plan. However, it's more than that because it also represents the beginning of a new era, a new time period, a new age for God's people. That's what Peter's talking about across in verse 16 when he stands up and speaks to the crowd trying to answer their question, what does it mean? He, he quotes from Joel, the prophet Joel in verse 16. Just look there. He says, no, this is, what, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. 
and they will prophesy. Joel spoke about a time in the future when all of God's people would receive the Spirit. When men and women, young and old, would each be filled and so proclaim God's wonders to all the earth. But for Joel, that was all still to come. It would happen in those days, he says, in the future. But here as Peter stands up in Acts 2 and addresses the crowd, he's saying those days are these days. As the Spirit comes on the disciples and as they proclaim the wonders of God to all who hear, Peter says this is it. God's calendar has moved on. These are the last days. And this is the the age that we live in. Just like the disciples, we live in this period of time, this time of the Spirit, where the time where God has come to live in the hearts of each and every one of his people. Which means if you're a Christian here this morning, if, if you are trusting in Jesus, you might not have seen tongues of fire, you might not have heard rushing wind, but you do have the Spirit living in you. You do have the Spirit in you. And so when in verse 12 the people ask, what does this all mean? Uh, Peter's answer is it means the Spirit has come to God's people. The time is now. But that's not all, is it? It's not all because actually it's not the Spirit who is the focus of this chapter. As amazing and dramatic as these events are, Peter wants to show us that, well, in the end, the arrival of the Spirit, it's all about the King. It's all about Jesus. Everything that happens in these verses is meant to show us that Jesus is King. You see, the Jews, they they knew that this new age, this new era for God's people, that They knew it would be brought about by God's Messiah, his chosen, appointed king. And in verse 22, if you look down there, Peter says to the crowds, this new era has come, it will be brought about by the Messiah, and you recognize Jesus as that Messiah, as that king. Verse 22, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. You saw it, says Peter. You you saw what Jesus did. You heard how he spoke. You witnessed his miracles. It, It wasn't all that long ago that you were waving palm branches as he rode into Jerusalem, as you praised him as the Messiah, the King. You recognized him as that king. But it didn't last, did it? You recognized Jesus as king, but then you rejected him as king. Verse 23, with the help of wicked men, you put him to death. You nailed him to a cross. You killed him for being the very one you were waiting for, for claiming to be the one you were waiting for. You recognized, but then you rejected the king. But then, verse 24, God raised him 
God raised him to life. And in doing so, he demonstrated that this well, it was all part of the plan. Jesus had to die for this new age to come in, for, for God to be able to be with his people. Jesus had to die. He had to deal with our sin. Jesus had to die, but he didn't stay dead. No, God raised him. He freed him from the agony of death, Peter says. That, that's the point of Psalm 16, which Peter quotes down there in verse 27. God would not let his Holy One, his Messiah, see decay. God's King, the true King, he wouldn't, he couldn't stay dead. Which is why Peter says to them in verse 29, this king, it, it can't have been the great King David of the past. It, it can't have been him. Why? Well, verse 29, because David is dead. I can show you his tomb, says Peter. I can take you to it. David died. No, it can't have been him. It, it must have been the one David spoke about. The one David pointed to. The true king who wouldn't stay dead, who wouldn't be abandoned to the realm of the dead. It's not David, says Peter, it's Jesus I'm talking about. Verse 32, God raised this Jesus to life and we are witnesses of it. Jesus is the one, he is the king who has been raised and is now exalted at the right hand of God. And here's where it all comes together because you can imagine the people thinking, great, that's great, Peter, but how do we know that? How do we know that Jesus is this exalted, risen king? And he says in verse 33, we know it because he's he has poured out his spirit on his people. Do you see that? As the risen king, he is the one who now pours out his spirit on his people. This man, Jesus, the one you recognized but rejected, the one who God has raised and is now ruling, he is God's king. And you can be sure of that, says Peter, because of what you have witnessed today. Because the Spirit has been poured out on God's people by the king. And so I hope you can see the point of Pentecost is to show that Jesus is king. It's there for us in verse 36. It's kind of a, a key summary verse. Uh, Peter says, Therefore, concluding my sermon, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Back in verse 12, the people ask, what does this all mean? And Peter says, Pentecost is all about King Jesus. All about the risen, exalted King. The one who, verse 34 says, rules from heaven and will return to judge. It's about King Jesus. Which leads the people to ask their second key question. You see, Peter ends his big sermon by saying, Jesus is God's king, and you killed him. You killed the Messiah. Can you imagine the terrible realization 
for, for the crowds that day. The one that God promised, the, the, the one the arrival of the Spirit points to, the one who would soon come back to, to judge his enemies, to make them a footstool for his feet. That was the one they had just killed. That was the one with the help of wicked men they had nailed to a cross. And so, verse 37, they are cut to the heart as that terrible truth hits them. And they ask, brothers, what shall we do? What can we do? And Peter's response in verse 38, it's astonishing. It is an amazing response. Just look at verse 38. Peter replied, repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I hope you can see how shocking that is. Given that the people have just crucified the Messiah, just killed God's King, when they say, what shall we do? You would expect Peter to say, there's nothing you can do. There's no hope for you. You've gone too far. You've, you've crossed the line. And all you've got to look forward to is death and judgment. That's what we would expect him to say. But it's not what he says, is it? No, Peter says, repent. Turn from your rejection of Jesus and instead recognize him as your king. Peter wants the people to realize, he wants us to realize that the very one they've killed is the only one that can save them. One author puts it like this. He says, this is the wonderful, amazing grace of the gospel. The gospel that says to those who have crucified their only hope, their only hope is the one they've crucified. You see, Jesus is king, says Peter. He is risen, he is ruling, and he will return to judge. And when he does, there will only be two types of people that stand before him. Those who have recognized him as king and so are welcomed into his kingdom forever, forgiven, restored, part of his kingdom. And there are those that have rejected him as king and so face his judgment. That is all that will matter on that day. Recognition or rejection. Repentance or rebellion. And Peter wants us to see that right now in these last days, this is the time we must choose. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so let me ask you, whether you're in here or, or watching at home, where do you stand? Do you stand in, in rebellion and rejection of the king? Or have you repented? Have you recognized that Jesus is king and, and so received forgiveness and life in his name? If you take 
nothing else from this morning, if you're, if you're bewildered and confused like the people in chapter 2, then please just take this. Please remember this. These things happened to show us that Jesus is God's King. And the most important decision you will ever make in your entire life is whether to recognize him or to reject him as that king. If you're someone who's done that already, if you have repented and trusted in Jesus, and so you have received this forgiveness of all of your sins, well then I hope you can remember, I hope we need to remember that 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 is just the beginning. You see, recognizing Jesus as king means recognizing that we are not in charge anymore. We never were. It means understanding that you no longer call the shots on your life. Being a Christian, it's not about saying a quick sorry Jesus prayer and then carrying on living life as you wanted to. No, being a Christian, Peter says, is submitting to King Jesus. It's taking the crown off of your head and recognizing, acknowledging that he is in charge. The good news, as we've already seen, is that, is that we're not called to do that alone. Verse 38, again, Peter says, Repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Spirit, the gift of the Spirit. The Spirit who enables us to, to live with Jesus as King. And the Spirit, as we saw last week, who empowers us to take this message of the King to the ends of the earth. Because as we close, it's not this forgiveness, this new life, this king, is not something that we keep to ourselves, is it? Verse 39 says that it's meant to spread. It's for all who are far off. We get a glimpse of that, that global spread of the gospel in verse 41. There's 3,000 people from different countries and nations, different languages and tribes. They repent. They believe the gospel. They trust in King Jesus and so receive that forgiveness themselves. But that is just the beginning. There are so many more people who are still far off. So many who still don't submit to Jesus as King. As we're going to keep seeing in Acts, it is our job to tell them. To tell them not just about church, not just about community, not just about activities and events, as good as those things are. No, our job is to tell them about the king. To tell them that there is a king of this world, that he rules from heaven. He will return to judge. And most importantly, he is the king who has given his life so that we can be forgiven, so that we can be part of his kingdom and have his spirit living in us. That is the king that we are to tell the world about. Let's pray together. King Jesus, we we praise you this morning as the one who rules over all things. We praise you as the one who will return to judge and make all things right. Jesus, we want to acknowledge this morning that you are king that you are in charge, not us. 
Please forgive us for the times when we act as though we are king of our lives. Please forgive us for the times when we fail to recognize you as king. Thank you that you have died for us so that we can receive that forgiveness, that you've given us your spirit so that we can take this news to the rest of the world. Jesus, please help us to do that, we pray in your name. Amen.